1 John 1, starting at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. We are continuing our comment on this section that we started last time. Last time, we addressed the subject of entire sanctification or sinless perfection. And we demonstrated from verses 8 and 10 that sinless perfection isn't possible until heaven. Christians are still imperfect. Christians do still sin. So the question is, what should we do after we sin? Is there a solution to this continuing sin problem? Yes, there is. The solution is that we are to first confess our sin to God, and then second, confess our sin to that person and or persons that sin is directly affected. Because we need both divine forgiveness and human forgiveness. Step one. Step one is to confess our sin to God. In part because all sin is first and foremost a sin against God. Verse 9, one more time. If we confess our sins to God, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some call this secret confession or private confession. This is confession to God. This is not confession to another man in an attempt to receive divine forgiveness. Confession to a priest is one of Catholic Catholicism's seven sacraments. It's called the sacrament of confession or sacrament of penance or sacrament of reconciliation. We also call confession to a priest auricular confession. Auricular means to confess into the ear. And essentially that's what happens when someone confesses his sin to a priest. The Catholic Fourth Laterian Council in 1215 A.D. mandated the practice of confessing sins to a priest. So according to Catholicism, confession to a priest is not optional. It is commanded. Salvation, for those that are unfamiliar, salvation according to Catholicism is a process. That process starts at someone entering into what Catholics call a state of grace. It is so important to them that we be in a state of grace. Um, and then once in that state, a Catholic person strives to remain in that state of grace until death. And then a good Catholic goes to purgatory. And then over time, he moves on into heaven. Catholicism teaches that the first sacrament of baptism puts someone into that state of grace. And then that person's status in that state of grace is solidified through the second sacrament called confirmation. But after that, if a baptized and confirmed Catholic has committed serious sin, then it is said he has fallen from that state of grace. So to be restored to that state of grace, the sinning Catholic is to confess that sin in secret to a priest. 
the priest then forgives that sin and assigns penance to that confessing person. That penance could be to recite the rosary X number of times. Uh, that penance could be to abstain for a period of time from eating certain foods or to serve the church in some capacity. Um, that form of auricular confession and forgiveness from the priest is never mentioned or taught in Scripture, in part because God never intended formal ordained functioning priests to be a part of this spiritual organism called a church. Instead, Scripture teaches all Christians are considered priests. First Peter 2 verses 5 through 9 describes us as a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. Revelation 1 verse 6 and Revelation 5 verse 10 describes us as a kingdom of priests. And we can get into what all that means another time. In the Old Testament, priests act, acted as mediators between the people and God. Priests offered sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But Jesus' sacrificial death through his crucifixion ended all animal sacrifices, so there is now no more need for a formal priesthood. A familiar verse, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. And that one mediator between God and men is not a Catholic priest. Instead, it's the man, Christ Jesus. I heard about one goofball. Um, I guess he thought he was being funny. He stepped into a confessional booth. The priest said to him, My son, what sins do you wish to confess? And this clown said to the priest, Your sins. Pretty sure the parish priest didn't appreciate that. Uh, but that goofball made a point. The point is no man can forgive our sins in the sense of divine forgiveness. It cannot happen. David committed two heinous sins. One, he and Bathsheba committed adultery. Then David had Bathsheba's husband Uriah assigned to the front lines of battle where it was certain he would die. And Uriah did die in battle. So that second sin constituted murder. Some would categorize it as first-degree murder because it was premeditated. Psalm 32, verse 5, is David's response to those sins. David said, I acknowledge my sin to you, meaning to God, and my iniquity, iniquities are sin, I have not hidden. That phrase, I have not hidden, David misspoke there because he had hidden his sin for some months until the prophet Nathan confronted him. Then David admitted his sin. David continued in this verse, I said, I will confess my transgressions, meaning sins, to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Holding ourselves responsible for sin means first admitting to ourselves we have sinned and then confessing that sin to God. Step two. Step two is to confess our sin to anyone else that our sin is directly affected. Sometimes our sin affects others. We are to confess that sin to them because we first need forgiveness from God and then we need forgiveness from man if that sin has affected someone else. James 5, verse 17. Confess your trespasses, trespasses our sins, to one another. And pray for one another. That's human forgiveness, people, not divine forgiveness. Um, that's one human forgiving another human 
for an offense committed against them. I could never count all the times I have had to confess to an offense and apologize to someone for some irresponsible thing I said or did. And most often it's something I said. My mouth can be a strength as it is on Sunday mornings as I stand here. That same man mouth, after I step down from here, can also be a weakness at other times. I have gotten in trouble often with my mouth and had to apologize. I just learned about a pastor, this just happened, that some time ago had offended a faithful member of his staff. It was a most serious offense. He forced this man to resign through no fault of his own. It was unjust and unfair. Congregation even pushed back on what had happened. But this man ignored that sin that he had committed. And he never addressed it. Until recently, this pastor was convicted about what he had done. It bothered him so much. He called this person he had offended. And he said, I need to apologize to you. And I need to do it in person. This former staff member had relocated and is now in another state. So this guilty pastor drove 19 plus hours round trip to spend 20 minutes with this former staff member he had offended in order to apologize to him face to face. That is sincere. That is confessing an offense and sin to someone else that his sin had affected. And I'm impressed that he would do that. Most wouldn't. The sad part is there are people in this congregation that have offended someone, have sinned against someone, and have never apologized to that person. That sort of negligence is symptomatic of a more serious internal spiritual problem called pride. And I have learned someone that cannot apologize cannot be trusted. Forgiveness is so often misunderstood. Even mature Christians uh, somehow don't understand forgiveness. So please, please don't miss this section. For some of us, this is going to be entirely new. For those who've gone through the Essentials of Discipleship course, this is some review. God's forgiveness exists in two categories. Those categories are judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. Those are two very different forms of forgiveness, and we must understand that. We don't have enough time to completely develop these categories, but it is essential. Essential, we have a basic understanding of them. Notice the first definition. Judicial forgiveness, also called positional forgiveness, is transacted at someone's salvation and is forgiveness from God acting as a judge. One more time. Judicial forgiveness is transacted at someone's salvation and is forgiveness from God acting as a judge. It results in the legal judicial forgiveness of someone's sins, all his sins, past, present, and future sins, sins he hasn't even committed. Colossians 2.13. Notice the chronological timeline in this verse. And you being dead in your trespasses, meaning sins, that's describing our pre-salvation condition. Before Jesus, we were spiritual corpses. He, God, has made alive together with him. That's called 
regeneration. Regeneration means being born a second time. This second birth means someone is born in a spiritual sense, made alive in a spiritual sense. And that regeneration is transacted at salvation, um, except a good Calvinist would argue regeneration is transacted just before salvation. But I don't really care when it happens. It happens. It's all in the past. And this next phrase definitely happens at salvation. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Having forgiven you all sins. People, there's this absolute, all-inclusive, and total forgiveness transacted once and for all at the precise moment someone receives Jesus. That means at salvation, in a legal, judicial sense, and judicial means related to a judgment, in that judicial sense, someone's past sins, present sins, and future sins are all forgiven. And that legal, judicial forgiveness means no Christian will ever face eternal consequences on his sins. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now... No condemnation. Condemnation is a legal word. Sometimes used in the sense of a judicial condemnation. So there is now no legal, eternal condemnation on sin to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus are Christians. So as Christians, we receive judicial forgiveness at salvation, and that form of forgiveness is an absolute guarantee from God we will never, ever face eternal condemnation in hell on our sins. This complete, absolute judicial forgiveness from all sins is something probably most Christians have misunderstood. I was one of them. Until I was an older adult, I had the mistaken idea that I had been forgiven from all those sins I had committed before salvation. But those sins I committed after salvation, I thought weren't forgiven, and each of them had to be confessed to God in order to receive forgiveness. Then I read a book where the author made the statement that divine judicial forgiveness is all-inclusive. He said Christ's cross has two arms. One arm that stretches back into our past and forgives, and one arm that stretches forward into our future and forgives, so that all our sins are forgiven. Don't miss this. If judicial forgiveness just forgave pre-conversion sins, Meaning if judicial forgiveness forgave only those sins someone committed before someone's salvation, as some confused people teach. If that judicial forgiveness doesn't also include all sins, present sins, and future sins, then each time a Christian would sin after his salvation, he would forfeit his salvation. If judicial forgiveness doesn't include all sin, each time a Christian sins he would forfeit his salvation because that sin he just committed would be unforgiven. So that person would then need to repeat his earlier salvific decision in order to receive judicial forgiveness for that sin he just committed that resulted in the forfeiture of his previous salvation. 
that would necessitate him going through the motions of believing on Jesus and receiving salvation over and over and over and over ad infinitum each time he sinned. And people, that is absolute craziness. I've said this a thousand times, and that is not hyperbole. I say it often, especially at a funeral service or memorial service. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And through Jesus Christ, at salvation, we are forgiven in a legal, judicial sense from all sins, so that there is now no unforgiven sin on our soul that we could be condemned for. In 1772, Mr. William Cowper, after a serious bout of depression, sat down and wrote these classic lyrics, and we have sung these lyrics. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, lose all their guilty stains. It doesn't matter what we have done. We cannot out God's grace and forgiveness. That's judicial positional forgiveness. And that is the forgiveness that guarantees us heaven. Not penance, not purgatory, not some sacerdotal religious ritual, not turning over a new leaf. It is that comprehensive legal and judicial forgiveness we receive at salvation that is our open sesame into heaven. And that ought to be something to get excited about. I said that ought to be something to get excited about. If we aren't careful, we're going to end up to be the church of the frozen chosen, okay? So we need, we need to make some noise out there. Good night. I'll give you another chance. Don't worry. All right. There's a second classification of forgiveness. Parental or relational forgiveness is transacted after, after someone's salvation. This is post-salvation forgiveness. And it's forgiveness from God acting as a spiritual parent. This is an entirely different form of forgiveness. Parental forgiveness is transacted after someone's salvation and is forgiveness from God acting as a spiritual parent. It results in the forgiveness of those sins that have interrupted someone's experiential and relational closeness to God. This is a different form of forgiveness altogether. At salvation, God becomes our spiritual parent. And in a strict spiritual sense, he becomes our father. And we become his child. And that is our relational connection to God from that point on. It doesn't change. It is a permanent spiritual parent-child arrangement. Now, don't miss this. Parental forgiveness is granted after someone's salvation each time a Christian confesses to God his post-salvation sins. That parental forgiveness is granted after someone's salvation each time a Christian confesses to God his post-salvation sin. Christians still sin, as we established last time. And sins we commit after salvation interrupt our closeness to God. Sin cannot change our relation to God. God is still our parent and we are still God's child. But sin can affect, dramatically affect, that intimate relational closeness we have to God. 
Remember, it restores our agreeableness to God. Some call that the restoration of our fellowship with God. A practical example. Consider two people married to one another. In that legal state of marriage, those persons are related to one another. But if that same man and woman are going through a separation and are estranged from one another, then those two still legally married persons are no longer experiencing intimate closeness and agreeableness. I'm guessing from the media, Tom and Gazelle Brady are going through that situation now. And to me, that is sad. A Christian has judicial forgiveness, and that cannot change. So his relation to God is never, never in question. But he still has to address those sins he commits after salvation. So he and God can be in agreement. So he and God can be close and intimate. If he confesses them, then he receives parental forgiveness for those sins. 1 John 1 verse 9 is not a comment on judicial forgiveness. This is a comment on parental forgiveness. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, confess them to God, then he, God, is faithful. Faithful meaning 100% of the time. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Does that mean he's faithful and just to forgive us in a judicial sense? No, no, no. Remember, judicial forgiveness happens at salvation. This means he is faithful to forgive us in a parental sense and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if there's a question about God's capacity to forgive, then read two verses earlier where John said in the second half of verse 7, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He cleanses us from not some sin, not most sin. He cleanses us from all sin. There are three things that should characterize our confession of sin as a Christian. One, confession should be personal. Personal, meaning we are to confess our sin, not someone else's sin. Someone said the three hardest words to pronounce in the English language are, I was wrong. Or in more biblical vernacular, I have sinned. To enunciate those words require that we smash our pride and admit to sin. Second, confession should be specific. Confession should be specific. In about 250 B.C., and this is during the intertestamental period, that period of time between the Old Testament and New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language because more and more of the populace were speaking Greek and understanding Greek. And so the Jewish people that were now Hellenized and Greek-speaking wanted the Old Testament in not Hebrew, but Greek. And so the Old Testament was translated into the Greek language. That Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint. In both the Greek Septuagint and the Greek New Testament, the words confess and confession are translated from the Greek word homologio. The word logio means something that is said, and the prefix homo means the same. So the word confession translated from homologio means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. To confess our sin, to homologio our sin to God, means to say the same exact thing about our sin that God does. 
Confession is agreeing with God against our sin. And that implies being specific, if that's possible. I was raised in church, so I've heard all sorts of stuff. Some Christians stand up and pray this pious prayer and these cryptic prayers. God, please forgive us for all our shortcomings. What is that about? All our shortcomings. That's vague. Be more specific and admit to impatience. Admit to disobedience. Admit to laziness or selfishness or deceitfulness or jealousness or immoral behavior and on and on and on. To steal a line from the great sportscaster, Mr. Howard Cosell, he said, tell it like it is. And when we're confessing to God, we need to tell it like it is. Third, confession should be repentant. Repentant. Meaning confession should contain a strong element of repentance. Repentance is translated from the Greek word metanoma. And metanoma means a change of mind. To repent about something, metanoma, means we change our mind, change our attitude about that something. Over time, in a Christian context, repentance has come to mean a change of mind about our sin. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who covers his sins, meaning the person that conceals and hides his sins, will not prosper. He could prosper in the meantime on a temporary basis, but in the end, he will not prosper. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. To forsake something implies repentance. The word forsake means to abandon to turn one's back on, to renounce, to disown, to reject. And that word implies that someone has changed his mind about something to the extent he's turning from it. He's rejecting it. He's abandoning it. And confession is more than words. Confession is an internal attitude. Confession is more than, I cheated on my taxes some this past spring. That's admitting to sin. But that's not repenting from sin. Repenting is changing our mind about what we did. Repenting is seeing our accountant and admitting to him we didn't declare all our taxable income. And we regret doing that. And we're repentive of that. And we want to refile. I heard about one man that did cheat on his taxes. But his conscience bothered him so much he couldn't sleep. So he sent the IRS some more money. And he included in that envelope, beside the check, a note that said, here's some more money I owe. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. That's, that's not repentance. Trust me. Let me summarize this. If there's a sin that we're convicted about, that bothers us. And we've committed that sin before our salvation, meaning it was a pre-conversion sin. Then we need to remember, we received judicial forgiveness for that sin at salvation. And because of that all-inclusive, comprehensive, legal and judicial forgiveness, we should then reject all feelings of guilt from that sin. 
And we should start acting forgiven because we are. If there's a sin we're convicted about and we, convict, and we committed that sin after our salvation, meaning this, is, this was a post-salvation sin, then we don't need judicial forgiveness. We need parental forgiveness to re-experience that intimate, experiential closeness and agreeableness to God. And we receive that forgiveness through confessing that sin to God. Some people teach Christians don't need to confess sins. Bob George was a popular teacher. He is now deceased and was one of the most recent to teach this idea. These people argue that to confess our sins is to doubt that we're forgiven. These people teach a hyper-grace gospel. Hyper-grace teachers argue that since our sins are forgiven at salvation, there is no need as Christians to confess our sins. Here's the problem. Hyper-grace teachers do not differentiate between judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. That's the whole problem. And the argument from them is, since we are forgiven at salvation, we aren't responsible for our post-conversion sins. So that as a Christian, there's no need to repent and confess sin. That argument is easily refuted. 1 John 2 and verse 1 identifies the addressees of this epistle. Verse 1 identifies the people John is addressing this letter to. Notice he said, My little children... These things I write to you. So these instructions from verse 9 on confessing sins post-salvation are addressed to John's spiritual children, and that's Christians. We confess our sins not to receive judicial forgiveness. We already received that at salvation. But we understand we need to confess our post-salvation sins so that as a Christian we can experience parental forgiveness and restore our intimate closeness and agreeableness to God. Question, what happens if we don't confess our post-conversion sins? What happens if we permit those unconfessed sins to accumulate and pile up? If we do that then three things are possible and none of them are good. One, there's a communication problem. A communication problem, meaning a problem between ourselves and God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, meaning sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Notice the New Living Translation. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It is your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Psalm 66, verse 18, David said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, I mean, if I hang on to sin, I won't admit, confront that sin, confess that sin. If sin is accumulating in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The New Living Translation reads, If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I recommend we maintain short sin accounts short sin accounts. 
meaning we don't permit unconfessed sin, sin we're aware of, we don't confess it, don't confront it, and we permit those unconfessed sins to accumulate. Someone made the statement that unconfessed sin is the same as static on a phone call. It interrupts the conversation. That analogous example sounds good, but it's not accurate. Unconfessed sin is not the same as phone static. It's not even a dropped call. Someone that permits unconfessed sin, unconfronted sin, sin unrepented of to accumulate and accumulate and then tries to pray is the same as a phone call that doesn't even connect to the number we called. That means if we don't address and don't confess our sins, then God can choose to not listen to us. And on a personal basis, I don't want to be in a position where God isn't listening to me. The Righteous Brothers were a musical duo from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even after. Now, if the Righteous Brothers, if that's unfamiliar, I understand. Um, that's when music was music. And um, <laughs> Bill Medley, a baritone bass, and still sings professionally at age 82. And Bobby Hatfield had an amazing tenor voice. In my humble opinion, no one has ever, ever sung Unchained Melody better than he did, and that includes Elvis. But at age 63, Bobby Hatfield died in his room at the Radisson Hotel in downtown Kalamazoo, Michigan, just hours before he was scheduled to go on stage. His unfortunate cocaine use had precipitated a fatal heart attack, and I was so sad to hear that. I'd love to hear them sing. I actually brought Hopi to a concert in the late 90s to hear the Righteous Brothers. Just another example of how good a husband I am. Um, <laughs> the reason I mention there's such a doubt, you know, in the congregation, I just have to say things. All right. The Righteous Brothers recorded a song called He. It was a song about God identified in that song as just he. It is a beautiful song. The lyrics said, and I'm tempted to sing it, but I'm not going to, and you should be grateful. He, God, can turn the tides and calm the angry sea. Agreed. He alone decides who writes a symphony. Yes, he does. He lights every star that makes the darkness bright. Absolutely, he does. He keeps watch all through each and lonely night. Correct. He still finds the time to hear a child's first prayer, pretty much. Then saint or sinner calls and always finds him there. Not necessarily. Saint or sinner calls and always finds him there, not according to those verses we just read. As a Christian, if we're refusing to address our sin problem, then we could find ourselves in a position where God isn't listening to us. There could come a point in time where I need God to listen to me right now. I need Him to respond to me in, a, in the next nanosecond. A nanosecond is one billionth of a second. So there's not enough time at that moment to do self-interrogation for unconfessed sin. So I need God to listen to me at that moment. It cannot wait. So confessing sin on a consistent basis, as we're made aware of that sin, 
ensures God will listen to us each time we need Him. Second, there's a chastening experience. A chastening experience. Chastening is, is biblical discipline and correction. Someone called chastening spanking divine style. I understand that analogy. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Meaning we shouldn't get upset because God corrects us. God corrects us, chastens us, because he loves us as children. We're doing something that's counterproductive, sowing something that could contribute to our own self-destruction. And so he wants to get our attention. He chastens us. Verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? A parent that loves his child corrects that child chastens that child, disciplines that child. What good parent doesn't correct his child? A permissive parent that doesn't correct and discipline his child, and there are millions of them, isn't a good parent. Verse 8, But if you are without chastening, of whom all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. If someone professes to be a Christian, related to God in a domestic sense. God is his father, he is his child, and he can sin and sin and sin and sin and never be corrected or chastened or disciplined. He's really not one of God's children. He's illegitimate. As a, a parent corrects his children, not the neighbor's children. He doesn't correct the neighbor's children because he isn't responsible for the neighbor's children. Verse 9, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? If we respect a father on earth that is faithful to correct his children, then we should have even more respect for our Father in heaven when he corrects us. Verse 10, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Um, that reminds me, uh, I'm the oldest of five children, and our parents believed in chastening, um, like on steroids. Um, my dad, before he would chasten me, and I was spanked, I know some of you weren't, and that's probably your problem. Um, <laughs> the Bible does teach spanking if it does, if it's done in carefulness, um, not to abuse a child, not to be done out of anger, but it is effective. Uh, and my dad would spank me, and my father used a belt. I don't believe in that. I've never used a belt. I've raised three sons. We used an eight-inch wide one inch thick oak paddle. It worked. Uh, but my dad would say to me, bend over, and I had different techniques. If I knew it was coming, I wore additional sets of underwear. 
I would pad my bottom as much as possible. I would also, as he would reach back, I would move into the swing to shorten the movement. <laughs> you learn these things, okay? But my dad would sometimes tell me, and I thought it was so stupid. He said, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. So I would offer to change places. But he never accepted that offer. It was so unreasonable. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. No one wants to be spanked, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Spiritual correction, spiritual chastening is painful at the moment it's exercised, but in the end, it's beneficial. Question, how do we know if we're being chastened? This is a common question. How do we know if what we're experiencing is chastening from God? This is not a complex answer. How do we know? We just know. It's similar to the question, how do we know if we're in love? We just know. It is apparent. If it is an actual chastening experience from God, it is as if God speaks to us through that experience about a particular sin and or sins that need confessing and resolving. One dramatic example. The month after I graduated from high school, my mother um, took me on a road trip to visit the college I would ultimately attend in East Texas. It was more than a 1,200-mile round trip. Um, I was the oldest of five. My parents did all the experimentation on me to figure out what would work and wouldn't work, and then, you know, applied that to the others after me. And uh, I was a guinea pig, and it was brutal sometimes. So I, I wasn't as close to my mother. She was always on me for something, which I didn't understand. She basically used me for child labor. It was terrible. But uh, she could drive me nuts, just nuts. And she did that on this trip. She took nagging to, a, to an art form. And I, at age 17, overreacted. Um, I acted disrespectful toward my mother. And I so regret that. I didn't curse because I don't curse, but I was dishonorable toward my mother. I said things to her I shouldn't have said. It was shameful. And I am embarrassed to even admit to that. It was so bad that if I had behaved like that in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Code, I would have been brought outside the camp and stoned to death. Juvenile delinquency wasn't tolerated under the Mosaic Law. It wasn't good. We got home, and I woke up the next morning, and my joints were swollen. Elbows, knees, fingers. All these joints were swollen. I don't mean some. I mean large swelling and redness and pain. So my mother took me to the doctor. He examined me and said that uh, I either had rheumatic fever or an allergic reaction to something. He said, we don't know which. We have to admit you. So he admitted me to the hospital so he could run some tests. I hadn't been in the hospital since birth. This is a foreign concept to me. I was in that hospital for two days. And I soon realized why I was in that hospital. There was no question. It was as if God was screaming to me from the walls. 
why I was there. God was chastening me. God was correcting me. God was spanking me, disciplining me for my unacceptable behavior toward my mother. And so from that hospital bed, I buried my face in the pillow and I confessed that sin to God. And I was sincere. I was repentive. And then once my mother came to see me, I confessed my sin to her and begged to be forgiven. That chastening in the hospital wasn't a fun experience. But something good resulted from that. It reinforced the fact that God actually was my spiritual father and I actually was his spiritual son because he cared enough to correct me and straighten me out. If I weren't his, he would have just left me alone. It turns out that just before our trip, I'd gone to the doctor for an ear infection. I was prescribed penicillin. And all the swelling I experienced was an allergic reaction to that medication, and I'm still allergic to penicillin. If we have experienced, as a Christian, an unexpected misfortune, and it happens, if we have experienced something such as a sudden illness, or a financial reversal, or an unjustified termination, or a personal rejection, and sometimes those things just happen because of the fallen world we find ourselves in. But if those things do happen, we should first interrogate ourselves, investigate ourselves internally for unconfessed, unconfronted sin. And if we do interrogate ourselves and we just cannot put our finger on a particular sin or on an offense against God that we could be chastened for, then if that happens, it isn't divine correction. It isn't divine chastening. We should examine ourselves. But if there's nothing there, if there's no apparent sin there, if God isn't convicting us of something, then don't manufacture something. Don't accept guilt for something that doesn't exist. If we're being chastened, we know it. Number three, and I'm finished, there's a premature casket. If someone permits unconfessed sin to accumulate, there is in some instances a premature casket. First John 5, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I've consulted a number of commentators on this verse. The exact meaning of this verse is difficult to determine. It seems the most plausible interpretation is that this sin leading to death is a reference to a Christian's sin that is so serious or a pattern of sin that is so serious that God decides to bring that sinning Christian home to himself in heaven. That sin is sometimes a particular sin. Sometimes it isn't a particular sin. Sometimes it is sins plural, consisting of different sins or an habitual pattern of sinning, the same sin. But it is a sin God considers serious enough to warrant a premature death. This sin that leads to someone's death is the straw that breaks the camel's back. That idiom, the straw that breaks the camel's back, is from an Arab proverb about loading up a camel past its capacity to move. 
as the last straw or last item is put on top of that load, it in a figurative sense breaks the camel's back. It's just too much. In that same sense, there are biblical examples of sins that have exhausted God's patience and could also be considered sins unto death as all of them resulted in someone's premature death. Here are some of them, some of those examples on the note sheet. Moses in Deuteronomy 34, he acted in disobedience to God. God said, speak to the rock. He hit the rock with his rod. Korah and his associates in number 16, Korah organized a rebellion against Moses. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, those men put together strange fire that God found unacceptable in sacrifice. Achan in Joshua 7, he stole some of the spoils from Jericho. God said, don't do that. And he did and hid them in his tent. And he died and his family. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 promised to give God all the money from the sale of a piece of land and didn't, held back some. Christians at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, those Corinthians abused the communion meal, the meal just before communion called the agape meal, wouldn't share their food. Some got drunk at that meal. And then those Corinthians abused um, communion itself. And some were chastened through being sick, and some died a premature death. A Christian can sin and can ignore that sin and ignore that sin so that in order to get his attention, God chastens him, corrects him. God chastens him, and if he doesn't change, if he doesn't confront his sin and doesn't confess that sin, and if he continues in that sin and continues receiving chastisement, and that cycle continues, God can, of his own prerogative, decide to bring him to himself in heaven to where he's no longer a problem. So he dies a premature death. That is the sin unto death. Some time ago, decades ago, a teenager named Armando in one of our previous congregations. He received Jesus at one of our services. He seemed sincere. Uh, there was a profound change. He seemed to have a spiritual appetite. He was faithful to attend services and he participated. He had all the external characteristics of a genuine conversion. As he entered adulthood though, things started to change. He started hanging around people he shouldn't. He started to date a non-Christian and do things that were uncharacteristic of his normal behavior. He started to use alcohol as a teenager, started to use drugs, started to attend some parties he shouldn't have. He was confronted about those things, but he, he didn't listen. He experienced some unusual misfortune, but it didn't register that it could be chastening from God. His attitude was it was just a streak of bad luck is the reason all these things are happening to him. He and his girlfriend then moved in together. He was confronted about that, and he blew it off. His father begged us to pray for his son. We did. But his behavior continued to deteriorate, and his problems multiplied and intensified. Then one night at about 10 p.m., he was standing outside his apartment in San Pedro, talking to someone, just talking to a friend. A car passed in front of them, slowed down, a handgun emerged from the car window, and three shots were fired. 
Armando fell to the ground in a pool of blood. And once the paramedics arrived, he was dead. It was determined after that that car was from a gang that was out to get revenge on an opposing gang member. It was a classic case of mistaken identity. Armando was never a gang member. And he wasn't the actual target. It was someone else from his apartment complex. But in the darkness, the person that shot him wasn't able to be certain of that. The funeral was packed. I can never forget it. Standing room only. People literally lined up all around the inside walls of the funeral home. Chapel. The police were there in case there was a disturbance from the gang they thought was responsible for that shooting. I've never, and I've conducted hundreds of funerals, I've never heard such loud crying and sobbing at a funeral service. I had to actually stop during my presentation sometimes just so that people could gain their composure and I could continue. No one can be certain until heaven, but I believe it is possible that Armando committed the sin unto death. He wouldn't confront his sin, admit his sin, confess his sin. He continued to sin and he exhausted God's patience to where God said, Armando, enough is enough. I'm bringing you here where you're no longer a problem. You're going to be here with me. And he was just 21. I confess those sins God makes me aware of. So I don't have a communication problem. I confess those sins I am convicted about so I don't have to endure another chastening experience. And I confess those sins I realize I have committed so I don't suffer a premature casket. People, this is serious business. Let's bow our heads. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Father in heaven, I thank you for what we've learned. I know this is new for some of our people. I get that. But uh, this is so important that we understand and differentiate between judicial forgiveness that happens at salvation, that guarantees no condemnation and a future in heaven, and then parental forgiveness that happens after salvation as we sin and we confess that sin to you so we can be close to you and intimate with you and have fellowship with you. I hope it's made sense. I really, really, really do. Sin is a serious matter. Someone said to me, well, sin is different for a non-Christian and a Christian. I said, yes, it is. It's much worse for the Christian because we know better. We understand the consequences. So God, I pray that we will take this to heart and we will let this message sink into our minds, into our hearts, change us from the inside out and be different people because of it. And I thank you and I praise you in the mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen.